0: Hello, and welcome to the Long-Term Investing Podcast with Baskin Wealth Management. I'm Barry Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer. Baskin Wealth Management is an independently owned investment management firm with almost $2 billion in assets under management, providing customized wealth management solutions and services to families and foundations. In this podcast, we ignore all the noise and have conversations that make sense about the things that matter in today's markets. It's what we talk about with each other here in the office, and we want to share those conversations with you. Please stay tuned for our legal disclaimer at the end of the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. First off, just want to say that Baskin Wealth Management stands with Israel And uh, the atrocities uh, that have happened there are just uh, horrible. And our thoughts and prayers are uh, with those that have uh, suffered uh, the losses. And uh, obviously, we know lots of clients, friends and family who uh, know friends and family who have uh, suffered there. And so, like I said, our thoughts and prayers are with them. And uh, let's move on now to investing stuff. Ernest, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, We're going to talk quickly about, uh, before we get on to our feature conversation, We've been talking about a lot about interest rates, and so interest rates, as you know, Ernest, have moved up to very high levels. So, Ernest, when I started in this business um, about uh, the summer 2000, when I started working for David Baskin, I remember we were buying client, uh, we were buying bonds for clients that paid around seven percent. And I remember Ernest that there were these things that came out a few years later called income trusts that paid eight to ten percent, and so high interest rates are. I mean, we forgot <laughs> for twenty plus years that interest rates can't get to these levels, but they were there before. And so, you know, for clients, um, for their fixed income parts of their portfolio, um, although you know, rising interest rates can hurt stock prices. We talked about it in many podcasts. It can be pretty good for those looking to save money as well as uh, you know invest portions of their safe money into fixed income and Ernest we've been buying some sh- very short-term corporate bonds with yields that we haven't seen in a long time paying well over six percent and so your thoughts on uh, you know interest rates being good for the safe so-called safety safe or less volatile parts of your portfolio? Well, as you mentioned, seven
1: percent interest rate on bonds doesn't even sound like a real number
0: mm-hmm. in,
1: in 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 recent memory. Yeah, I think the the big discussion is is about the long bond, which uh, which has has certainly moved quite a bit higher over the last little while. Today, you can buy a can get a GIC mm-hmm. uh, with five year GIC for over five percent.
0: I think yeah, five year GICs. They start to come down. Definitely, the one-year GIC. Some some are touting that they're almost as much as six percent. For those that don't know what a GIC is, it's a it's a Canadian uh, guaranteed product up to one hundred thousand dollars, where you lock in an interest rate, and that's essentially the risk-free rate. You have no liquidity; you can't sell it until it matures. But if you're getting close to six percent on an extremely safe product, things that are things have to that have some risk. Element in them have to obviously have higher yields to get you to buy them,
1: and it's if you're a, you're a retiree or somebody who's looking for or safer income, it's it hasn't been this attractive for a very long time, especially if you consider things like like fees to the financial advisor or or taxes for sure. And I think that's one reason why you are seeing a a very strong influx into fixed income products
0: now of course let's peel back the onion just a bit on fixed income because as the words imply the your income that you receive is fixed unlike a an investment in a, in a business or, or shares in a company you could your payouts could increase uh, as well as the your investment or your ownership and could appreciate in value whereas your income from a bond is there it's fixed um, you have no upside, unless you own a very long bond and interest rates plummet. And of course, the key element of, is inflation earnest, right? So you always should talk about uh, fixed income in context of inflation. If inflation is running 3 or 4%, which it is in the US and as well as Canada, if you're getting 6% or 5% on a GIC, after inflation, maybe after fees or taxes, you're still not earning a significant rate of return, probably more than you were earning um, pre-2022 when interest rates were 2% and inflation was 1%, but uh, not. it's not still a really great value. No, but I think
1: that's one of the reasons why, uh, maybe, if you look at the sell-off in, in so-called rate-sensitive stocks, mm-hmm. it's because for... For a very long time, and certainly through COVID, you, you couldn't own bonds. You you were earning nothing and, and negative. Anyway.
0: You were earning negative. That's correct. Remember And remember, some bonds were even offering negative yields. But you're absolutely correct. If you're getting 2% on a bond, inflation is 2%. Um, most money managers have to charge you for assets. Uh, you're not, and and those income that you're receiving is taxable. You're not making a lot of money on fixed income at two percent. And
1: now, if you're getting five percent on government bonds and GICs, then it makes a lot more sense to to increase the bond portion of your portfolio and. And maybe pull back a bit on the equities. It
0: it does, it does for sure. Though we can't uh, get too excited about five or six percent if uh, you're getting uh, after inflation. I saw you. Someone tweeted, uh, "Ernest, um, you know, the, now that some of the dividend stocks and uh, other companies that have high yields now, the yields have gone up. Is it's looking attractive to to them?" And I think your response was you tell me what the gic is going to be and i'll tell you if that 7 or 8% i'm getting from a dividend is attractive
1: well i think i think the other thing is that dividends are a much more complex topic yeah you, you have to con- because in essence you're it's a claim on a company's profit mm-hmm. and not a a guaranteed interest payment like a bond or a gic yeah. mm-hmm. if you're investing in a company with a dividend yield you have to consider whether the business is profitable, whether like they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet, for example mm-hmm. and, and these are all the things that you have to consider and so i don't I don't think it's people saying, oh, you're getting eight percent on like name your dividend stock yeah it's and,
0: and bridge or TransCanada pipeline I think are paying eight percent right now
1: and and they're saying, well, that's still really good relative to your government bond, but, yes
0: you know who knows, yeah. Who knows? It's hard, it's hard to say. So let's quickly just talk about our strategy for fixed income for our clients and what we've been doing. So, uh, you know, we're not—we don't have a crystal ball. I'd like to think we're pretty smart, but we definitely got concerned when interest rates fell to low levels, and they've been at low levels for a long time. And as a result, Ernest, we kept our bond maturities for many years at very short uh, durations, essentially. Uh, we didn't want to buy bonds that had long maturities, especially when interest rates were near zero. And so we we tried to contain ourselves and not reach for yields. You know, we said, okay, we'll get 2% on a shorter bond instead of getting 2.5% on a longer bond. That was actually the right decision, though no one rewards you for owning fixed income when uh, it has negative years when interest rates went up. So, I mean, 2021 was an okay year for fixed income. Obviously, interest rates were low. 2022 was just terrible. Um, so far in 2023, our, our our fixed income performance has been a little bit better because we continue to be very, very short. But if interest rates continue to go high from here, it, it's tough to make money on bonds. I, the only thing I will say to those listening is bonds are their own asset class. They're not cash. Uh, There's an asset class where you're trying to invest uh, fixed income where you can get uh, more liquidity and maybe even uh, bet on uh, interest rate movements as well as um, uh, trying to figure out how long you want to lock in a certain type of interest rate. And so with interest rates at these levels, we're we're still keeping our maturities and earnest very short, but uh, certainly have moved them up a little bit as uh, 6% looks pretty good to us for now.
1: And, and I would add, that's especially if you think that inflation is going to be under control in the next little while, mm-hmm. where you could possibly like, get some upside as well.
0: That's right. So, I mean, that's from our research, from our analysis, uh, we believe that inflation, it may not come down to the 2% level anytime soon, but we think it's come under control. And uh, we're, 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 f- we're thinking that the uh, governments are near the end of their interest rate hike cycle, And maybe the economy will slow down as the interest rates impact that, you know, raising interest rates to six, 7% is going to slow the economy in the next few months, we think. And so it's probably a good place to be to start uh, uh, buying some short term bonds and locking in those nice yields. Anything else you want to add there? Nope. Well said. Okay. So, Ernest, you wrote a blog on our website. Um, We've been doing a lot of podcasts, so less time for writing blogs, but. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about what you you, you wrote and then we'll move on to our feature discussion, which is a company that comes out of that blog.
1: So the topic of the blog was what to do when a stock you own does nothing. And I think a lot of times, if if you look at a stock, like if it's up a lot, then you feel great. If it's down a lot, like it's not too hard to, figure out why it's down usually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I either something either they made a, a big mistake or the whole market is down and it's not really their fault. So
0: mm-hmm. well you should always just take approach that the other guy's wrong and then you'll feel better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but sometimes stocks just do nothing for a long time. You you sit with it and you you come up with your initial thesis and then and then you own the stock and then you buy it and then it doesn't do anything for like seven, eight years.
0: Yeah. And that can be painful. Um maybe you're st- still collecting a dividend. Uh, so that maybe might soft, soften the blow. But you know, in, in this day and age, um, we want instant gratification from our investments. We've all read that uh, a, the regular investor is trading a lot more often. They're quite impatient. And not they're not going to hold a stock that's not working. And let's talk about, I guess that's the natural conversation is stock price versus fundamentals.
1: Exactly. And I think that's that's really the key. I think that the the rationale on why people want to sell these stocks that, that quote-unquote aren't working is because you, I think people treat their portfolios as a sport team hmm. where they have a variety of players and you know, some of them are going to be playing well, some of them don't do well, and so you want to kick the players out that don't do well for ones that are going to do better.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense in sports.
1: I think people don't really realize that um, s- stocks are not exactly the same as sports. Like stock prices in the short run and even in maybe even in the medium run are largely a, a random walk. That's the term that we use. Mm-hmm. A lot of things happen often beyond the management's control of, of what happens. So a, g- a great example is in COVID, right? Like if you were running a travel and leisure, like a cruise ship company, right? There's nothing you could have done that would have protected your business. Nothing. Like you you could be the greatest CEO in the world and your business still went to zero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think if you have a stock that yes, to be sure, like if you have a stock that doesn't do anything for a long time, You need to be humble and and if you and evaluate whether what you thought you knew about the company is still true. Like if your thesis was that it's a great business that's gonna keep gaining share Mm -hmm. and they're not gaining share anymore, then you were wrong. But like also recognizing that sometimes things happen and and stocks just become out of favor for for reasons that Mm -hmm. can't be
0: controlled. Yeah. I, I, I I guess are you wrong because the stock price didn't do something for X number of years? Does that make your thesis wrong? Are you, it certainly doesn't do wonders for your portfolio and it certainly draws attention when you've picked or recommended a name that is not working stock price, but when are you actually wrong on that stock?
1: Well, I think it's safe to say if a stock's down like 80%, you're, you're
0: probably wrong. You're probably
1: wrong. Either you were wrong or you dramatically
0: overpaid mm-hmm. for the stock. All right. So you explained a little bit. So when you have a, sto- a stock in your portfolio that may be underperforming, uh, maybe it's peers, maybe it's underperforming other investments in your portfolio, obviously you want to double check your thesis. And I think that's something you should be doing anyways. Yeah. So talk to us what, let's say, Ernest, we have a stock that's underperforming for three, four years. You're getting heat from Barry. You're getting heat from other portfolio managers. Clients may want to talk to you about it. Why is this one down? All my other ones are working, or or what? A ha- what have you? Um, you know, what do you do to get comfort that you know the stock that stock is still okay to keep?
1: Well, I, I think it, it comes down to, for me at least, I think the, the the number one analytical factor is the management. Do you still believe that the management knows what it's doing? Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of situations that we've we've looked at, like the management tells a good story, but like they they keep they keep telling the same story, and hmm. earnings don't really go anywhere. Yeah, and at some point you got to wonder if they actually do know what they're doing. And in in, in those cases, I think if if you, like this I think mm-hmm. if the management, it, it may be. It may be the fact that you're the one who's, who's slow to wake up to the fact that the management doesn't know what they're doing. It could be true, yeah. And so then maybe it, it's time to look for another idea.
0: Yeah. Well, definitely over a long... If you held a stock for a month and it hasn't done anything, um, then that's on you. <laughs> and uh, you've got to figure out what type of investor you are. But if you held a stock for, I don't know, three, four, five years, and it hasn't worked like you thought it worked, but yet the fundamentals are improving... Um, you know, maybe you need to talk to other, uh, investors, maybe those that are negative on the stock, maybe those that have a short position, a re you know, re you have to reach out and get a good idea where you could be wrong on that investment. Um, not just a nasty Twitter troll reaction. Good one, moron. Something like that is not going to be helpful to you.
1: But the flip side is that the business world is a messy place mm-hmm. like sometimes, Sometimes, even for the best company, like things aren't going to work out perfectly.
0: Yeah,
1: and being able to to recognize that sometimes things don't show up in in earnings for a long time. So, yeah. let's say a company was building a new a factory, right? Like, it's, if you build a factory, it's a risky thing. Like, yeah, they might costs might go over, even if it was a, a great idea. Uh, maybe demand falls in the meantime because of a recession. And all sorts of things can happen. Yeah.
0: Well, so in the past, Ernest, um, I've sold stocks because I haven't done anything, and I've always regretted it. Maybe not the next day, but definitely a, a, a month, a year, whatever time period later, um, because the thesis more often than not comes true. Um, so I don't want to do that anymore. I want to. I only want to sell because a the management is disappointed us, or you know we or we figured out our research is completely wrong. But, uh, you know, I guess this leads us to our feature discussion about an investment that we have that hasn't done anything, but you and I and the rest of the Baskin Wealth Management team are excited about it, but it doesn't seem that anybody else is. And so uh, we're going to talk about Vale Resorts. Well, hasn't hasn't done anything is is
1: more of a... I wouldn't say that's entirely true. Yeah, like they the stock has done tremendously over the last fifteen years. Yes, just not in the last five six years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No. So, Vale, just for a bit of background, Vale's the largest operator of ski resorts in North America. They own they own Whistler, they own Vale, they own Beaver Creek. These these are big resort areas that people like to go to.
0: Mm-hmm. Like you'll
1: you'll fly to. To ski in one of these places, millions
0: can- of uh, attendees every year to their uh, to their assets.
1: Yes, they have about 19 million skier visits, which is about a fifth of all attendance. In, in North America. Mm-hmm. Now, the ski industry is a fairly mature one. Like people aren't really skiing as much as they used to, and there have been no large new ski resorts built. In the last, call it 40 years or so. Okay. The ski industry has also been a historically been a pretty tough business because if it doesn't snow one year, then nobody goes and it's basically a write off. Yeah. So, and because the ski season only lasts for about you know, four or five months, you can easily go without revenues. Mm-hmm. If, if,
0: and you really need it to start snowing before Christmas because so much money is made over that winter break. And that's uh, what didn't happen for some of Vale Resorts' properties last year.
1: Yes. So what Vale's CEO recognized, the former one Robert Katz, is that look, it's not going to not snow everywhere every year. Yeah. So if we own some resorts in Colorado, we'll own some in Vermont. We'll own Whistler in BC, Lake Tahoe. Yeah, we'll own Lake Tahoe. I mean, even maybe own some in Australia and Japan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, even if it doesn't snow in in one place, you're fine because you still have the other places, and and the all the 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 risk of poor weather is is spread out across the resorts. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Vale recognized, which totally transformed the ski industry, is that they launched the Epic Pass, which is a season pass where you pay about 800, 900 bucks or so mm-hmm. upfront for unlimited access to Vale's properties
0: and, and mm-hmm. some other properties. And well. then they have different tiers if you're only going to go a few times, if you're not going to go to the Elite properties, if you're only going to go to the ones maybe more in the Northeast where they're driving distance, but they, they've, they've they've got a pass for you where you can prepay and uh, that obviously, as you're going to mention, lowers the risk for Vail.
1: Yeah. So the key for the Epic Pass is that you pay up front. So Vail already has your money, regardless of whether the weather is good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so if you put these two things together, geographic diversification of resorts across the world, basically, and the fact that the customers, 70% of its customers today pay up front, it's a pretty good business now because that, that, that is not really sensitive to weather fluctuations.
0: Mm-hmm. Although, okay, although I, there was an article the other day that the, you know, the weather for the last three, four years has not been good. So uh, obviously, and I guess we'll get into that a little bit about concerns about climate change and how yes. that's affecting snowfall. Yeah.
1: Now, the cherry on top of mm-hmm. this is that because Vale's business is so much more predictable than it used to be they can now invest in the business they Mm -hmm. can invest in technology they can invest in 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 nicer restaurants they can build faster chairlifts yeah all these
0: kinds of nice things yeah when there is a good day when they do get some good weather everybody complains that there's too many people there and they have the waits are too long so what they need to do obviously is invest in in chairlifts and and better moving equipment and this strateg-
1: Vale's strategy has been tremendously successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so successful that basically every ski resort in North America was either forced to partner with Vail or not have any attendance yeah. or sign up with uh, some of the competing past products which yeah. exist.
0: Yeah, so Vail vale was the uh, instigator and then there's been other passes from uh, another group. I think it's Altera, right? They've So that gets you uh, the Villadisky and other resorts across North America. And if you look at just the numbers,
1: like it's been very successful. Attendance is up, I think, about three times since 2014. And remember, this is a mature industry.
0: Like, so attendance at Vail Resort Properties is up 3x three, three since 2014. No, some
1: of this is 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 from acquisitions. Yes, of to course. To be sure, but yeah. still-
0: They acquired park properties, I think, Ernest in 2018 or 2019. Peak. Peak. Peak okay. resorts. Peak resorts. Excuse me for that. Peak resorts, and those were more the Northeast properties, and that really, uh, prior to that, Ernest Vale was really more out uh, West. That's right. Now, the stock, the, the
1: reason we're talking about Vale is that the stock has done nothing for about- six years. Nothing. Basically since since mm. they bought Whistler Mm -hmm. in 2016. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Number one is that after they bought Whistler, the valuation, the market became very enthusiastic about about Vale stock. Mm -hmm. Pushed it to a pretty high valuation. Uh, We, just for some disclosure, we, Vale paid stock for Whistler. So we, inherited a a large chunk of our position in Vail from that acquisition. Correct. But, so, so the expectations for Vail from the beginning were already pretty high.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Number two is that uh, COVID happened. Like, from 2020 to 2021, like, there were two years when attendance
0: was, was terrible. Even, even into parts of 2022, there were restrictions and issues and, and concerns that people had. So, Almost three full ski seasons of no skiing.
1: <laughs> yes, and Vale has held up much better than the rest of the ski or travel and leisure industry mm-hmm. during COVID. Like they still made money because people could still go skiing. Yeah, it's an
0: outdoor activity. It's you may not be able to fly there, but you could certainly uh, drive with your family. And uh, I remember when the ski resorts were open during COVID. Um it was pretty seamless. So you, you may not have been able to grab a beer inside, but you could pretty much do everything else.
1: Yeah. So that's that's definitely impacted the company in a few ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Number three is that last year was a was a rough year for Vail because of inflation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah Whistler uh, Whistler and all these properties are kind of in the middle of nowhere, yeah. so it's 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 a challenge for Vail to attract people to to go and work there, and they had a bit of staffing challenges over the, in, in given the wage inflation
0: over the past mm-hmm. f- and little it's while, just a huge demand for part-time jobs last in the past few years has been incredible. So are you saying uh, things and have gone under control?
1: Yeah, yeah, and so if you put all these things together, I think the Market has kind of lost confidence in the growth thesis, mm-hmm. especially since the the architect of the whole Vale Resort strategy decided to retire yeah. as well.
0: Is, has he remained on as executive chairman, or he's completely out of uh, business?
1: Yes, he he's kind of like on a, a Bezos-like involvement in the company where mm-hmm. he, I don't think he's partying on yachts, but he's he, 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 he wants to spend more time with his family on, on philanthropy. Fair enough. But he's still providing strategic guidance on, mm-hmm. on major decision making to the company.
0: And for those who want to read more about Rob Katz, there's a great book called Ski Inc. Highly recommend it. I think it's pretty reasonable on Kindle. And Ernest and I both have read Ski Inc. Check it out.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, whatever, <laughs> man. You. I got to it faster than you. All right. And so put together, like I think the stock is is. Is really attractively valued today. Okay, you're getting an eight percent free cash flow yield. Unbelievable for a very high quality portfolio of of some ski resorts. They're paying a four percent dividend yield. Mm-hmm. They just finished investing in in capacity upgrades, mm-hmm. so they're in good shape for a little while. The labor situation is certainly much better than it was last year,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and I think there's growth opportunities ahead of it. As it continues to acquire more resorts,
0: there's also pricing power. We we didn't talk of uh, that a few years ago, prior to COVID. Uh, after Avail had come out with this Epic Pass, they lowered the price to try and spur demand, and it it worked. It was very successful. Then, of course, COVID hit, uh, but now prices uh, they've started to raise prices back up for the Epic Pass as well as those that you know attend attend without a pass.
1: So that's, I think, another reason where the market lost confidence in Mm Vail. For a long time, I think investors viewed Vail as kind of like a Disney World kind of thesis where they would basically raise prices every year above inflation forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, I think it was the 2021 ski season, they announced a 20% price cut. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Investors... Understandably, I think they said, well, look, Vale's not Disney World. Like, yeah. They have to cut prices to gain attendance. So they didn't want to own the stock the anymore. The pricing power thesis was shot out the window. I think this was one of the most shrewd business decisions that I've seen hmm. in a company that I've ever studied. If you look at the price cut, Ski resorts by their nature are are fixed cost businesses. Like the mountains there, the chairlifts are there, the people are there. It doesn't cost Vail much more money whether an extra person goes or
0: not. Mm
1: -hmm. Vail recognized that coming out of COVID, they had a once in a generation opportunity to incentivize people to go out and ski. Because people were stuck at home for a long time, They were looking for things to do. And the pricing had also gone a little bit higher than it used to be. So they announced a big price cut after their competitor had announced pricing Mm -hmm. to to, to add more people. And this was very successful. They added a lot of, like millions of of, of new Epic Pass holders.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And once these people bought the Epic Pass, they tried it they like the skiing and they 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 become loyal customers of Vail and so as a result of this pricing action Vail today is a is a much bigger company like they have more attendance and they have still opportunities to raise pricing going forward
0: mm-hmm. so let's okay so i want to talk about valuation i want to talk about the balance sheet cuz some some people have mentioned uh, there's some balance sheet risk and, and growth opportunities for Vail. So, you know, valuation, you 8% free cash flow yield for a business that has, I mean, this is not a business that you and I can open up ski resorts tomorrow to compete against it. Uh, you know, these are once in a lifetime assets. Um, pricing, as you mentioned, they have ability to pull some levers there. It looks like, Ernest, you mentioned. did you mention in your blog that Vail's price, um, they're, they're looking at 7 to 11% increase this year in... in in top line because of pricing and attendance activities? Yeah, that's the management's guidance. Yeah, management's guidance. So you're looking at a company that could, I mean, the weather is impossible to know, but could grow top line by double digits, could grow bottom line by double digits, 8% free cash flow yield. thats That seems to us is a very attractive valuation. Um, any comments on that, Ernest?
1: I think the, the one other thing I would note is that there... They are buying back stock. Yeah, I think the like good good companies recognize when their stock is cheap, and they use extra cash flow to buy back stock.
0: Um, And and they've been they've they've also been retiring shares for the last number of years because, as you said, it's a fixed cost business and generates a lot of free cash flow.
1: They've really ramped up the buyback in the last like once the stock dipped.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, but I think to your point on the balance sheet is. They raised some some pretty cheap debt, yes, in the, in the depths of COVID, and they, in essence, used that
0: money to buy back stock. Now they they issued some pretty cheap debt. I think they issued it at zero percent. Yes. So the, the, and their convertibles, right? So at a much higher price, they'll have to, yeah, they'll have to. Uh, but I, either way, they may have to refinance that debt at a much higher interest rate. Um, any concerns, Ernest, about its balance sheet?
1: No, I think. Overall, a leverage is still like quite reasonable, yeah and I think the most important part is that, again, they've, it's, it's a much less cyclical business and sensitive to weather than it used to be mm-hmm. because of what they've done with the season pass and with, with owning for a variety of resorts in different places.
0: So let's talk about growth opportunities to finish off on Vale. Um, as you talked about, they mentioned they acquired peak resorts. can't remember the year they acquired it, it was at, it was pre-COVID, right? Peak was pre-COVID, yeah, just. and uh, they also recently made they may they've had some investments on in Australia, although that, Australia turned out to be a lousy uh, snow season for the Australian resorts this year, so that also has affected the stock price somewhat, and they also made an investment for the first time ever in uh, Switzerland, in Switzerland, in the Alps. Yes, and it's called Undermat. Okay, and so is is there a is there a, is this a like a little tasty bite that they're trying to get some sense of, and do you expect more, uh, you know, you. Sw- I think you've spoken to the management, um, any indication of any acquisitions that they're thinking about outside or inside North America?
1: Inside North America, there's still opportunity for acquisitions. Mm-hmm. I think the nice thing about Vail is that if you look at who's partnered with the Epic Pass, you can get a pretty good sense of who they're eventually going to re- acquire. Yeah. So that includes Telluride, that includes uh, resorts of the Canadian Rockies up in 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 the in Banff mm-hmm. and includes Mount St. Anne. So those are some that they'll probably acquire at some point.
0: And every single property that comes onto this Epic Pass I, I I hate to use this term but it creates a little bit of a flywheel effect, right? It's uh more uh more credits they can sell, more re- ski rentals, more food, more you know it all works together and, and and maybe builds a better experience for those that attend those uh, uh, ski resorts as well.
1: Yeah, and I think the key is that they own a bunch of regional ski resorts as well. Mm-hmm. So not places that you would fly to but like they have a, a couple little ski resorts in upstate New York. Okay. Right. Like let's say you live in New York then you you buy your Epic Pass and then you can said, "Hey, look, I can go to Whistler without having to pay." Right? And I think internationally, I think they've talked about making acquisitions in Japan, and 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 longer down the road, like, like they've certainly started to dip their toes into Europe, which mm-hmm. is which is surprisingly like a three times bigger than North America yeah. in terms of skier.
0: There's no end to the uh, acquisitions. So climate change, this is the big one. Um, everybody is talking about it, and the obvious candidate is you know the. The world is getting a few degrees warmer. Unfortunately, um, won't that mean less snowfall? And uh, how can that be good for skiing? So the first thing is that Vale has
1: probably more than anybody invested a significant amount of of capital in snow making equipment mm-hmm. to maintain ski conditions. Now, I think like last year in some of their in some of their resorts, it was so warm that they couldn't even make snow. Yeah, but like, I think that's more of a one-off than a...
0: Yeah, it could be an El Nino effect or whatever they call it. Um, and, and there could be some arguments that if the world heats up by one degree, it maybe that would lead to more snowfall in some areas. Yes, and that's,
1: and that's the second point is mm-hmm. that in a consolidating industry, usually the best properties end up becoming better uh, because number one, they have the, they have the best properties mm-hmm. uh, and people want to go to the best resorts and they have the best snow-making equipment. So as the industry declines because of climate change or because of whatever, then they, they might actually gain attendance. Mm-hmm.
0: So Ernest, I learned to ski when I was six years old at Earl Bales Park at Bathurst and Shepherd. Um, they had a tiny ski hill. And I learned with my sister, but my parents didn't ski. So there was never any follow-up. And so I never went skiing again until, you know, I'm married now. But my wife uh, said she wants to be a ski family, always goes skiing with her brother and my older son, and got me back into skiing when I was, I don't know, mid to late 30s. I'm scared of skiing, Ernest. And uh, my... my. uh <laughs> My my few times that I've gone skiing Lake Placid in Vermont during Family Day weekend in February was like minus a thousand degrees. That wasn't very fun. So uh, skiing is not really in my future. But my family does half of us. Well, I have two kids, so uh, my my wife, my son, and my brother in law uh, go away every year. And guess where they go? Vale and uh sorry Whistler and uh, this year they're talking about going to Vail so they love the the experience at Whistler they love the skiing at Whistler and uh hopefully uh, they'll continue to go as long as they can so what about you does your family ski any any interest there I've been trying
1: to teach the kids how to ski I think they like it although if it's it's like minus 20 then you know I don't really want to go yeah they're okay but not me
0: yeah, I'm a baby as well. Well, thank you everybody for joining us, and we'll see you back here real soon. Take care. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any forecasts on the economy, markets, or individual securities should not be viewed as investment advice, a recommendation, or an offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Clients of Baskin Wealth Management and the speakers on this podcast may own shares of the companies discussed. Information on this podcast is current as of the time of production and is subject to change. If you have any questions or would like to subscribe to these podcasts, visit our website at BaskinWealth.com.